a taste of why I think I have the best job in Tucson. And in the morning, I get to talk to somebody like Demetrius Saltis or Ferry Lozell, who gave a nice presentation last night on black holes. In the afternoon, I can be talking to Yancey about star formation. So if you have attention deficit disorder like I do, it's, it's great to go from one exciting topic to another. Yancey, you, some of the people you've heard from today got their PhDs with us and then eventually came back to our faculty. Yancey is one of our undergraduates originally. Uh, and I think this is fantastic for our current undergraduates because when he says he understands how complicated it is to do a double major in physics and astronomy here, he really does understand it. And he's been very successful not only in his outstanding research career, but in mentoring a lot of our undergraduates to go on to a whole bunch of exciting careers and a wide range of things. But today, you get to hear about what he spends his time on when he's doing research, which is where do stars come from? Where do stars come from? Thank you, Bill, and it's a pleasure to be here. I always love giving the public talks. This is actually some of my favorite venues to, to talk in. So what I want to talk to you about today is how stars form. That's what I study. That's what I got interested in as a senior undergraduate here, working with Professor Chris Walker in the astronomy department. He set me on a path through graduate school and my, that I've continued to follow today in my, in my research career. So when you go out and you look at the night sky, go to a very dark site, which we have a lot of here around southern Arizona, you can see about 5,000 stars with your naked eye. And that's only a really tiny fraction of all the stars in our home galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. In the Milky Way, there's over 400 billion stars that we know of in this galaxy. Where do they come from? How do they form? How long does it take them to form? So those are the kinds of questions that I'm going to hopefully answer for you today. And the answer is actually right here in this image. If you've ever looked up and you've seen the beautiful bright band of the Milky Way galaxy, you might have noticed that there's all these dark regions that are in the Milky Way. And from even some very dark places in Tucson, you can actually see these dark clouds of material. So what these things are, they're called giant molecular clouds, and they are the site of star and planet formation today that is occurring within our Milky Way galaxy. So this is an image of our Milky Way. It's actually stitched together from several images that were taken from the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere that shows you the sort of full extent of the galaxy wrapped around. So this is wrapping around 360 degrees here. This direction is looking towards the center of our galaxy, and so if you could fly about 26,000 light years in that direction, you would find a supermassive black hole that's in the center of our galaxy. But all along the plane of the galaxy, you see all these dark, opaque clouds, and those are the giant molecular clouds out of which stars and planets are forming today. If you add up the total amount of material that's in those clouds in our home galaxy, it's well over a billion times the mass of the sun. So there's a lot of raw material there still to make stars today in our Milky Way galaxy, and that's exactly what they're doing. Now, the Milky Way is not unique in this aspect. As a matter of fact, if you look at pretty much all spiral galaxies, spiral galaxies you can easily see have these molecular clouds. This is the Whirlpool galaxy, M51, and you notice that the molecular clouds, they actually tend to follow the spiral structure in this galaxy. Yeah, you find a few in the interarm regions, but they're mostly along these spiral arms is where you find the molecular clouds. And most type of galaxies, with the exceptions really of ellipticals, even though there's a few ellipticals that have molecular clouds in them, uh, tend to have molecular clouds that you can see. So what are these objects, and how do we actually study them and study how the stars form in them? So first we have to figure out 
that they're actually clouds of material. And it actually took a long time for this to happen. So for many times, for millennia, people looked up at the Milky Way, and they sort of referred to these dark areas in the Milky Way as places where there were voids or vacancies of stars, not clouds of obscuring material. It wasn't really until the invention of photographic plates and the astronomer E.E. E. Barnard at the turn of the last century that he actually realized that these were actually clouds of obscuring material. So here's an example of one of these images. This is actually from a paper in 1907 that E.E. E. Barnard published. This was the state of the art at the time, a very long photographic exposure of the central region of Taurus. In the Taurus direction, there's a very, very nearby cloud that is forming stars. And this is part of that obscuring cloud, this large filamentary structure that you see here. And you can even see that E.E. E. Barnard hedged his bet in this paper because in the title, the caption, it says vacancy in Taurus. And so that's the dark part he's referring to. But in the article, he starts to come to the conclusion this is really an obscuring cloud of material. Now, if E.E. E. Barnard had modern CCDs and DLSR cameras, this is what he would have seen for this particular region, and it would have been obvious that this is an obscuring cloud of material. So what is doing this? What's causing this to happen in optical wavelengths? Well, here's your answer over here. This is actually a microscopic view of a dust grain. These things are very, very tiny, and they happen to be about the same size as optical wavelengths of light. And because these dust grains in these clouds are about the same size as the optical wavelengths of light, they are very, very efficient at absorbing and scattering that light at optical wavelengths. So if you can get enough of these dust grains together and collect them together in a cloud, it can appear opaque at optical wavelengths. Okay, well, I love this picture next. This is actually taken by another one of our former graduates from the program. You may have seen some of Adam Block's astrophotography images. If you've ever followed any of the local astrophotographers here in Tucson, Adam also works with the Mount Lemmon Sky Center. This is a star-forming region and a molecular cloud. It's in the constellation Monoceros. It's about 2,000 light years away from us, and it's forming some very, very massive stars. This is probably an environment that's, that's very similar to what our sun formed in 4.6 billion years ago. So this is a good kind of region to study if you want to understand a region like where the solar system might have formed. And just look at all the beautiful structure in these clouds. It's very filamentary. It looks very turbulent and complex. This is not a simple spherical cloud that's just collapsing down to form stars. It's complicated. There's a lot of complicated dynamics going on here. And especially in this region right here, where you see sort of this red glow coming from, down inside the cloud, in that region where the red glow is emanating out of, there are some very massive stars that are currently in the process of accreting gas and forming inside of this cloud. I want to study those regions. I want to understand how that process happens. But the problem is, if I try to do this at optical wavelengths, all those young forming stars are embedded within that cloud and I cannot see them. This cloud is opaque at optical wavelengths and I need to be able to peer past all this dust that is obscuring the line of sight so that I can see what's going on. Well, let me show you how we do this. And there's a couple of techniques and I'm going to show you two of the main techniques we use to study these giant molecular clouds. The first is actually to use the dust itself. And you're like, wait a minute, the dust is a problem, okay? The dust is obscuring what's inside the cloud at optical wavelengths. But because those same dust grains are absorbing that short wavelength radiation, that optical light, those dust grains do heat up a little bit, okay? Now, a typical dust grain in the interstellar medium, not anywhere near a star, if you just stuck it in an average place in the Milky Way galaxy, 
just from the light, from the interstellar radiation field, from all the background stars, absorbing that energy, it would heat up to about 15 degrees above absolute zero. Now that's cold by Earth standards, but that dust grain, because it has some amount of energy to it, thermal energy to it, will radiate and give off light. It just doesn't do it at optical or even in the near infrared. It does it way out at very, very long wavelengths in the far infrared and at radio wavelengths. Those same dust grains that are doing the obscuration here glow at those long wavelengths. Furthermore, because the light wavelength that these dust grains are making is so long in wavelength, once a dust grain managed to generate one of those photons of light, the other dust grains intervening between you and this cloud have very little chance of actually reabsorbing that light. And that's what's very, very important about this long wavelength. We can see the back side of this cloud just as easily as we can see the front side of the cloud at these long radio wavelengths. So we can now probe the entire structure through the entire region of this cloud by examining this glowing emission at very, very long wavelengths. So this image right here was taken with a radio telescope at a millimeter wavelength. It's sort of the wavelength of light that, that this is. And so this is about, in terms of light, about 2,000 times longer in wavelength than what your eye is sensitive to. So this is what I did for my thesis. When I went to graduate school at the University of Texas, on radio telescopes, we were going from having single pixel detectors, where if you wanted to make a map like this, you literally had to point at every position on the sky and slowly make your map up, to the first multi-pixel detectors. It had 37 pixels. That was awesome, right? And so that's what I did for the first year of my thesis, is I went and mapped regions like this and then modeled their structure to see if it matched what we expected for these regions. By the way, that filament that I showed you that E.E. E. Barnard imaged back in 1907, here it is glowing now at these long wavelengths. These are all the dust grains just because they're thermally emitting. Even though, only, even though they are only 10 to 15 degrees above absolute zero, we can still see their emission and we can see the emission from all parts of this filament in this cloud. Well, that's not the only way we can study these regions. There's actually a second method. And the hint is in the name of the objects. We call these things molecular clouds, but so far I've only been talking about these dust grains. And it turns out the dust grains are only actually a minor constituent of these clouds. The dominant component that makes up these clouds are gas, molecular hydrogen, and other molecules. So we can actually use emission from the molecules in these clouds, which also emit at radio wavelengths to see them. So let me show a beautiful example of exactly how this works. This is the Horsehead Nebula. It's a dark nebula in the constellation of Orion. And if you take a radio telescope and you tune up to the correct frequency, you can see the carbon monoxide molecule. Changing the speed at which it rotates, it gives off energy at this wavelength. And if you map the cloud at that wavelength, you can see the gas that's in this cloud, not the dust, but the actual gas molecules in this cloud glowing and giving off light. This is really amazing, and this molecule is very, very good at tracing the structure. I just want to point out, you notice this tiny little wisp of a cloud right there? It's glowing in carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is a great tracer of the gas in these particular clouds. The reason why this happens is because of the way nature works. It's due to quantum mechanics. The molecules, when they rotate, our classical notion would be, well, yeah, molecules, when they rotate, they can just rotate at any old speed they want. But that's actually not how nature works. Molecules can only rotate at certain speeds. And so they have fixed energy levels that they can only rotate at. And when they change the speed at which they're rotating from, say, one level down to the next slowest level, 
they give up that energy as light at radio wavelengths. And that's what we can tune our radio telescope to to be able to see the molecules in these clouds. So this is where the story comes back to Arizona, is at this point. So there's a radio telescope on Kitt Peak. It's the 12-meter radio telescope. And while Stewart Observatory is celebrating its 100th anniversary, this telescope on Kitt Peak this year is celebrating its 50th anniversary. So it's been here for half the time the Stewart Observatory is. This was one of the first large-scale telescopes that was built to be able to observe millimeter wavelength radio radiation coming from space. And it was specifically purpose-built for that, that purpose. Now, the dish that you see in here today is not the original telescope. This is actually the third iteration. But two years ago, we went through a major upgrade. And this thing is state-of-the-art now. And I'm going to show you in a minute some observations from the new dish. But what's really important is back in 1970, a couple of guys came out from Bell Labs, which was one of the premier radio research places in the United States at that time. And it was the same two guys that had discovered the cosmic wave background and would get the Nobel Prize for discovering the cosmic wave background. Bob Wilson and Arno Penzias. And they brought out a detector that worked at a wavelength of, of three millimeters and put it on this telescope. And they pointed their detector at the Orion Nebula. And in this famous paper from 1970, they saw a strong signal right exactly at the frequency that they expected the carbon monoxide molecule to emit at. So this right here was the first observation that there was gas in these giant clouds, dusty clouds of material. And in 1970, here on Kitt Peak in Arizona, the science of molecular cloud studies began. And it really went fast. In the early 70s, once you got this signal, and by the way, this is not some weak signal that's down close to the noise level. This is a booming, easy to detect signal. So very quickly in the first few years, people were able to start mapping the clouds, molecular clouds, in different constellations. So if your eyes worked at the wavelength at which carbon monoxide emits at, at three millimeters, and you looked up at the constellation Orion, this is what you would see. The Orion Nebula is down here. But stretching through almost the entire constellation of Orion is a giant molecular cloud. It contains well over 100,000 times the mass of the sun just in this one cloud, and it's forming stars within that cloud today. So this is an example of a nearby region that we can study. Now, carbon monoxide is not the only molecule that we can see in these regions. And some of these star-forming regions have a very, very diverse chemistry. So let me show you an example of in the Orion Nebula, behind the famous trapezium stars, actually deeply embedded in the cloud is an object that you cannot see at visible wavelengths. It's obscured by the molecular cloud that the Orion Nebula is sitting in, part of this cloud here. And if you take a radio telescope and you go look at that particular source, you see all these different spikes. This is taking the light and spreading it out into its different component frequencies. And every one of these spikes that you see here is a different transition from a molecule changing the speed at which it rotates. And we can identify them. Here's the transitions for water right here. Here's another transition from carbon monoxide. You get some noxious stuff. There's sulfur dioxide up there. But then you start to get some really interesting molecules that are basically complex organic molecules, prebiotic molecules that are necessary for, for, the, for the formation of life. Things like methanol, methyl formate, their transitions are all seen there in the raw material out of which this star and planet system is forming right now out of the Orion Nebula. Now, you guys want to see something really cool and new? It's actually not been published yet, so I'll show it today. A new result that a graduate student that I've been working with, we have done. 
So this is the Orion Nebula, and this is a region where massive stars are forming, and where this particular embedded object is, it's very warm. And when you have warm temperatures, you can drive a lot of chemistry in the gas phase in these clouds. A lot of reactions can happen. But what about in a region where there are no stars forming, like before the stars form, where it's really, really cold, like 10 degrees above absolute zero? Do you still get all these complex organics and things like that? Well, we went and looked, and guess where we went and looked this last few months over the winter here? That same filament in Taurus. So here's a blown up version of that beautiful filament that E.E. E. Barnard looked at in Taurus. Everywhere you see a red X is a dense region within this filament. In none of these regions are stars forming yet. These are the precursors before star formation. And we took the new version of the 12-meter radio telescope on Kitt Peak, and we looked and went, looked for organic molecules in these regions. And I will tell you that in 100% of the cores that we looked at, we detected complex organics in these regions. So here's one of them. This is acetaldehyde, CH3CHO is its formula. Acetaldehyde is sort of maybe infamous, you might say. When you drink alcohol, that's what your liver turns the ethanol into that gives you a hangover. Yeah, not good. So for the younger generation, which I teach a lot of millennials in my class now, they love internet memes. Go home, Taurus, you're drunk. It's the first astrochemistry meme that we've ever had. All right. So this is work that's been done by Samantha Scabelli, who's a first-year graduate student here. I'd also like to highlight one other big thing that we've been able to, to do here at Arizona. We're really living in this decade right now in sort of a renaissance time in the study of these kinds of objects because we now have the instrumentation on the telescopes to be able to do large-scale surveys of the entire Milky Way galaxy at these wavelengths. Detector arrays are big enough and they're sensitive enough that we're actually able to detect the clouds and the dense regions within those clouds all the way across the Milky Way galaxy. And so we're able to do finally complete surveys of star-forming regions in our home galaxy. Now, what's really interesting about this, I don't know how many of you were at Chris Impey's talk last night, the public talk. He sort of made an analogy about why you need to get bigger optical telescopes because the detector technology at optical wavelengths, they're about as efficient as you're going to get in terms of CCDs. That is not true at radio wavelengths. We still have a long ways to go. We can improve a lot in the detector sensitivity. And we're still at the point where in the detector array, we're still working with fused numbers of pixels, especially for the molecular line observations. We don't have anything like thousands of pixels yet in the focal plane. So we have a lot of improvement still to go at these particular wavelengths in terms of the technology. So in terms of the surveys we can do, here's a great example of part of the galactic plane. Again, at optical wavelengths, pretty much all the action and interesting stuff is obscured by the molecular clouds. Some of these clouds are so dense that even as you go into the infrared, the clouds are still opaque even at infrared wavelengths. But of course, the dust grains are thermally glowing at millimeter wavelengths in the radio, and we can now see these all the way across the galaxy. So a few years ago, we took the other radio telescope that the University of Arizona runs, the submillimeter telescope, which is a 10-meter radio telescope on Mount Graham, and we did the largest ever survey looking for dense gas in these particular regions. So here's an example of some of the results that we got. We have surveyed over 6,000 of these regions that we had discovered from this large galactic plane survey and started looking at the physical properties. So what this is a plot of is if you map out along the galactic plane angle from the galactic center, which is at zero, and this is increasing into the northern hemisphere, so 90 degrees is about in the direction of Cygnus, if you're familiar with the sky, and this continues on out to about 180 degrees is the direction of Gemini, the opposite direction from the galactic center. And then this is a plot of the velocity of the gas. This is 
something that we can do from our observations. We can determine how fast the gas is moving relative to us using the Doppler shift. And so the curve that you see here, the general shape, is due to the rotation of the Milky Way galaxy. And all of these black dots now tell us within the molecular clouds, which is this colored stuff that you see on the plot, where the dense regions are that are active or future sites of star formation. So one of the other things that's come out of this, this is now work that's being done by one of the graduate students who I'm happy to announce as of Monday of this week, accepted the Jansky Fellowship, a prestigious postdoctoral fellowship at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. So he'll be graduating in May and heading off to start his postdoc uh, in working with NRAO. He's used these surveys to look for the very earliest stages of star formation across the galaxy. He's now identified several thousand of these objects in the Milky Way. And here's an example of one. You can see it's, again, at 8 microns in the infrared, it's very opaque and it's very dense. If you add up the total amount of material in this cloud, there's about 800 solar masses of material, yet there is no evidence for any star formation activity that's occurring in that particular region yet. So you're finding an object in its very, very earliest phases, and we can now start to study these objects. Now, to also put this in perspective and how much things have changed in the time since I got my PhD and the time that Brian, in May, is getting his PhD, 16 years. All right. When I wrote my thesis, a year after my thesis, I published a paper on the statistical properties of these dense regions where stars are forming. I did a lot of observing and a lot of work to observe 60 sources. And that paper got well cited. It was well, well received by the community. What Brian and colleagues like Brian and myself are working with now are thousands of objects. And they're much less biased than the samples we were looking at before, which were some of the brightest, easiest to observe objects. So we're now finally really getting a full census on the physical properties of how these dense regions within the molecular clouds actually form stars. So what do we actually know about how star formation is occurring? So in our home galaxy, the Milky Way, it's cranking out stars at a rate of about one times the mass of the sun per year. Okay, And the whole process takes a while. Within a molecular cloud to form a protostar takes on the order of a few million years. So unfortunately, we just can't sit around and watch it happen. What we have to do is we have to catch objects in different evolutionary phases to piece the whole picture together for how these gas clouds collapse and actually form stars. And what's really remarkable is that when you look at these clouds, they're very inefficient at turning their gas into stars. If you take the mass of clouds and you take the mass of clusters of stars that have formed and you compare them, the mass of clusters of stars is a lot less than the mass of the clouds. And it's only an efficiency of about 1% to 2% of the gas in any particular molecular cloud really gets converted into stars. That gas gets broken apart, dispersed. It has to reform in new clouds and start all over again. So the star formation process is somewhat inefficient in galaxies. So what's actually controlling this? And the last two questions that I've left here on this slide are the cutting edge questions in this research field today. These are the things people are still debating about and trying to figure out. So for instance, how do these star formation, why is it so low? And what is keeping gravity from making all these clouds just collapse and form stars at very, very high efficiencies? Well, as you saw from the image I showed of that molecular cloud, it looked very complicated and very filamentary. It looked very turbulent in terms of the gas motions. And so that turbulence can provide support against gravity that can delay the collapse. But there's also another effect which can also do that. Magnetic fields thread throughout these clouds, and the magnetic fields can also provide support against the collapse of the clouds as well. Unfortunately, it's really, really difficult to measure the strength of the magnetic fields in these regions. And so we've had 
since the early 1970s, a long debate in the community which is still not resolved as to what the relative importance of these two physical mechanisms are for setting the time scale for collapse in these regions. And the final thing I want to talk about is how does the material flow within these clouds to actually form the stars? This is another area that's very, very active in research right now. Especially for the most massive stars, there's a debate going on about exactly how that occurs. Now, massive stars are among the rarest of stars that we have. So finding them forming is hard to find because there's not very many of them. But if we can find the earliest phase of them, we can answer the question, finally, of exactly how they form. Do they form from some part of the cloud just sort of monolithically collapsing as this bigger giant mass into a large star? Or does it start out as a smaller dense part that actively accretes material, does so competitively with the other surrounding dense regions of the cloud, and then wins out to build the big star at the end of the day? And those two models, again, are still being debated in the literature. I'll tell you that the work that Brian has been doing here at Arizona is favoring the latter model, that competitive accretion seems to be closer to the answer for what we see in these regions. So let me end with this slide. The next time you go out at a dark site and you look up at the Milky Way and you see these dark patches in the Milky Way, that's over a billion solar masses of raw material and it's still forming stars today. And I'll just leave you with one last thought. If you could be here three and a half billion years from now when the Andromeda galaxy collides with us, and the gas compresses between those two galaxies, there's going to be a burst in the star formation rate. And our night sky, instead of being this one single band, is going to be a complicated mess, and it's going to be spectacular to see. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.